Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, thanks, Pete. How are you today? I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we really have the incredible fortune of welcoming Dr. Joseph Zuckerman to the podcast. This is a gentleman who certainly needs no introduction, but we will try to do him justice anyway. Dr. Zuckerman is the Walter A. L. Thompson Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the NYU School of Medicine and Chairman of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at NYU Hospital for Joint Disease. He's been part of the faculty over there since 1984 and was appointed Chair of the Department in Orthopedic Surgery in 1994. That's a lot of years to be serving in leadership. He served as the director of their orthopedic residency program, one of the largest and most prominent in the country for close to two decades. As a trainee, he completed his residency in orthopedic surgery at the University of Washington Affiliated Hospitals and fellowship in adult reconstructive surgery and arthritis research at Harvard. His research, education, and leadership accomplishments are quite frankly unmatched. He's published hundreds of peer-reviewed articles and textbooks and journal ed- uh, articles, etc. And he has served and continues to serve on the editorial board of multiple high-impact journals. He has served as our president with regard to the ASES as well as the AAOS. We could go on and on, but we're going to stop here and get this podcast started. Dr. Zuckerman, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Rachel. Dr. Zuckerman, um, many of the listeners to our podcast are um, early in their career. They're fresh out of fellowship, they're in fellowship, they're in residency, some even medical students. Certainly, we look at your career and think what a great destination to have ended up at. Tell us a little bit about how you got there. When you look back on your early career, what were some decisions you made that ended up having maybe a bigger impact, positively than you expected? What are some things, some mistakes you made along the way that you wish you hadn't made? Well, Pete, that's a uh, that's an interesting uh, question. And uh, I'd like to tell you that, you know, the, the way my career has played out is the result of careful strategy and calculation, but it hasn't, that would be untrue, right? Sometimes uh, things just happen and things break a certain way for you. I think the key is to make the most out of every opportunity. I mean, when I look back and, you know, this is uh, the key, the key is for me is that whenever I found myself in a place, I took advantage of opportunities that presented themselves. I didn't even necessarily look for those. So, you know, I, I'll be the first to tell you that when I was applying to medical school as a, a student at Cornell back in the uh, 1970s, it was tough to get into medical school. I got into two medical schools. One was the Medical College of Wisconsin, and uh, the second one was uh, SUNY uh, Upstate in New York. But by the time I got into Upstate, I already had moved to Milwaukee. So that was, uh, that was a moot point. So by leaving, I'm from New York, and by leaving New York, uh, I experienced the Midwest. Now, when I went out to medical school, I, uh, I had just had my wrist operated on for scaphoid non-union from an uh, intramural sports injury in uh, college my last year. And I can't make it any more impressive than that, just intramural sports. <laughs> and, uh, and I needed an orthopedic surgeon there. So I... Uh, contacted somebody basically from the student health service there who was an orthopedic surgeon in, in Milwaukee, a guy named Paul Jacobs, who I was 
became a, a, a friend and mentor of mine uh, for the next four years. And it turns out he, he trained at the Hospital for Joint Diseases years before. And then here I am, I go around and I'm applying to medical school. I'm sorry, I'm applying the residency program. And I go and interview with the University of Washington. And, uh, and uh, Victor Frankel, who was the chairman there, uh, sees a letter from Paul Jacobs and says, how do you know Paul Jacobs? I said, you know, I explained to him. And he says, well, he was my junior resident. You know, because Victor Frankl trained at the Hospital for Joint Diseases. Well, whether that was a, a factor in me matching there, you know, uh, who knows. Uh, but so I wound up at the University of Washington. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, this guy from uh, New York City who went to college in upstate New York has now experienced the Midwest, the West Coast, right? And, uh, and getting great training at the University of Washington. So lo and behold, you know, three years later, Victor Frankl goes back to New York to become chairman at the Hospital for Joint Diseases, and he re recruits me to join him, right? And, uh, you know, he, was, he has been a singular individual in helping me develop my career. Uh, how did that happen? Well, I like to say it happened because I, I got injured playing intramural football in, in uh, college. <laughs> Otherwise, these pieces wouldn't have fallen together. And, and along the way, you know, you, you just... Uh, as I said before, you make the most out of every opportunity. Somebody asks you to do something, you do it, and you do it to the best of your ability. I guess that I would summarize that way. I could probably go on for 45 minutes, but I don't think you want me to do that. Well, I'm, I'm sure our listeners would love hearing your story and hearing um, kind of how things ended up the way that they ended up. But what a fascinating route and a lot of opportunities that, you, as you said, you took advantage of. Um, let me ask, you know, you've, you've mentored hundreds, if not thousands of students, residents, and faculty, both junior and senior faculty. Many of our listeners are early in their career. What advice have you found to be most helpful to people early in their careers? Um, and, and for our ASCS listeners in particular, those shoulder surgeon um, listeners, but really just any young listener, someone maybe who's a senior resident or a fellow or someone early on in their practice, what advice have you found to be most helpful? What do you tell you know the people at NYU um, when they seek your advice about how to be successful? Well, I think it's you you have to have mentors. You have to have people who are willing to support your efforts and help you grow and provide the advice. Now, you mentioned that I've been mentors to you know different individuals through the years, and that's true. And to be a successful mentor. You have to feel a commitment. You have to you want to do it. You have to want to spend your time and effort to help other individuals, but you also have to recognize and appreciate it's a two-way street. When you mentor somebody, right, you want them to uh, uh, recognize the value of it and appreciate it and, and make the most out of that opportunity. So I, I, you have to look for mentors. So when you look for a, a job and a position, it should be ideally in a, in a, in a situation where People are supportive around you. There's competition everywhere, right? Absolutely. But most, the, the most productive and constructive situations are those where you have supportive individuals around who are going to help you with your career. Now, that's, that's, uh, that has to be combined with being able to develop your practice you want, being able to do the, the variety and volume of cases that you want, uh, that you want to do to, to grow as a surgeon, but it, it also has to be in a, in a in an environment that's that's fun. I mean, most of us went into orthopedics because we in, we anticipated that it was going to be 
fun. It felt fun. We rotated with her in the different places and the residents were having fun and we were attracted to it, not to mention also the nature of the surgery and everything else that uh, we found attractive. So that, that, that all that's important. And the other piece of this is that no matter how, how uh, much work you have or how much, uh, how much you're asked to do and how successful you, 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 you want to be, right? You know, everything is not work. I mean, one of the, one of the, the, the things that I tell patients, I'm sorry, patients, to tell my, my colleagues, you know, and my junior faculty and residents as well, you know, none of the stuff that I do professionally would be near as meaningful to me if I didn't have the family life that I have, right? And, and frankly, as wonderful as my family is, right, it, it, it may not be as wonderful as it is without the professional life that I have. And balancing those two is very important. So you have to be in a situation where you can balance those and get the most out of every aspect of it because the combination of the two is what really makes for not only a successful career, but more importantly, a happy life. Dr. Zuckerman, I, I think it's so interesting you talk about having fun at, at work. And I, I remember very vividly my residency interview day at NYU. I was asked to play video games while describing the innervation of every muscle connected to the humerus. Certainly, the residency is famous for their bench press competition. And I, I agree with you. I mean, it's a diff, this is a difficult job, and having enjoying the people you work with is really important for avoiding burnout. And you run a really large department. Tell us your strategies for maintaining that culture that NYU's become famous for. How do you how do you keep that going when there's so many people going in different directions? Well, you know what you said, what you just described is important to me. It's always been important to me that people. Uh, have to want to come to work, right? They have to look forward to coming to work. Not not to work 12, 14 hours a day, seven days a week. Not, not nothing nothing like that. But you know, to 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 uh, be in a situation where you have valued colleagues, you get along with people, right? And people are kind of you know pulling in the same direction. Now, I think we have that at NYU, and we you're right, we have a large department, and, and I think we've managed to develop this this. Uh, this culture that in which people, uh, and this is what I usually tell people. Our culture is that we don't have people on the same page, but we have people in the same chapter, right? As opposed to some people being in volume one and other people being in volume three of a, of a three, of a three volume uh, trilogy, right? So uh, everybody has their own needs you know, and their own goals and everything. But the key is, you you have to you know also focus on the the bigger the bigger goals involved. And for us, it's building a department in which everybody's successful. And you know, I guess the the, the microcosm of that is you know yes, there are times when we'll add we'll add another you know joint surgeon right to our faculty, and the more junior uh, uh, total joints faculty will be concerned because well they're just building their practices and then they're going to concern they're going to lose cases, and I tell them. There's never been a situation where we haven't added somebody and within a year, everybody was doing more, right? And that's, people have to buy into that, right? And not focus only on their, on their own uh, individual uh, goals and, uh, and achievements. And, and as for being fun, well, you got to surround yourself with the right people. And, uh, you know, people ask me uh, the similar question that you did, right? And I, uh, I don't, I don't want to sound uh, too uh, self-serving, but 
people have said to me, right, it's, it, the, the culture, you know, emanates from the top, right? And I'm not saying from, from me solely, but the people that we have in leadership positions, right, they, they, they're, they're singing from the same hymnal, right? You know, and, and that's important. And so how you choose faculty and how you develop those faculty is important. The people in leadership positions have to do just that. They have to lead. And leading is not just uh, being have busy practices or, or directing one program or another, right? It's, it's leading by example. And that's, uh, that's critically important. And I will tell you that over the last 10 years, we've had a, because we do have a large department, we have a, over 150 faculty members. You know, there were, we had a couple of faculty members that stood out because of, I would say that sort of negative energy that they imparted, right? And it was never more evident to me the impact of having somebody uh, like that around than when they were no longer with us because it was addition by subtraction. All of a sudden you realize you spent so much time trying to, you know, balance and, and address issues and everything. And it, it just detracts from the overall entity. So uh, I think that uh, that developing that culture takes a long time and nothing is perfect. Absolutely nothing is perfect. There's always going to be, you know, highs and lows. And the key is, right, to address these things head on, right? If there's a problem, talk to people about it. Communicate. You know, there's an old saying that, you know, nobody, nobody ever lost their job by communicating too much. And I find that in my role as department chair that, the more people know about what's going on, the more uh, straightforward and honest and forthright you are, the better they understand it, right? You know, I have a talk that I give on, you know, the, the 15 commandments of leadership. I would have made it 10 commandments, but I, I couldn't get it down to 10. So I had to make it 15. So, uh, and, and part of those lessons are, you know, communication, you know, dispelling any rumors, any, any, any misperceptions, right? And making sure people understand. Because if they understand, then their responses will be based upon you know, fact, not on you know suppositions. One of the factors that you mentioned that you we we glossed over just a little bit there is that you have to find the right people and recruit them and hire them. So you know, again, we have a lot of listeners who are earlier in their careers who are looking for jobs. Tell us what you look for when you look for faculty, or if you are someone looking for a job, what. What kind of person do you do you should you aspire to become? Okay, so uh, I've done a lot of recruiting through the years. I've made some mistakes. I've had misjudgments, but this is this is for me is what it comes down to, and it's a fairly simple formula. All right. So first of all, the the foundational elements are honesty, integrity, ethics, right, and they have to be very good. At what they do. If you if you're hiring a recruiting a surgeon, they have to be you know ab above a certain level in terms of surgical skills. All those things, those are the 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 givens. You have to have that. And I've, what I've come to is the one element that I look for beyond that is work ethic. Right? I look for work ethic. If somebody works hard, they're going to be successful. Bottom line. Right. The, the problems that I've had with faculty through the years when people don't want to put the time and effort in and whether that's putting the time and effort in because they're an out, because their main focus is developing a clinical practice and they're not doing it or they're, they're 50 percent of their time is on research, supposed to be on research and they're not doing it or they need to focus on education. They're not doing it. It's work ethic. You know, there's an old adage. 
if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. Right? And I, I think that's true. You know, the more people can focus on the uh, uh, have a, have a work ethic that is at that upper percentile, the more successful they're going to be. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody I recruit is going to be a great clinician, a great researcher, a great educator, or uh, be able to administer and direct programs. Those are the four silos that everybody will fill to a varying degree. I have people in my faculty, outstanding surgeons, clinicians, they teach the residents, they will never write a paper, never write a paper, and that's okay because I got other people that are going to write 50 papers a year, right, and drive the research engine, as well as being excellent clinicians. So it's the combination of those two that you, that you really look for. So for me, the uh, work ethic will, will, is consistent with success, right, across the board. Speaking a lot about our, our younger listeners here in this new COVID era that we've all embraced and, and are going through right now, each in our own individual ways, uh, many of which are dictated due to the region of the country that we're in. One thing that's certainly consistent, um, especially amongst orthopedic programs and residency programs, is that education is changing. Uh, it's, it's becoming almost exclusively virtual. At least I know at our program, there's, there's no in-person conferences and when you do a Zoom lecture, say on shoulder arthroplasty, and you want to ask the group their thoughts on a case, or you know ask a resident to to answer a, a basic PGY three level question, it's really hard to get that in person feedback um, that that we're used to getting. We have less interaction, potentially less meetings and labs, et cetera. Um, where do you see this going? How is that going to change the future practice of orthopods? Obviously. You know, we hope to get this pandemic under better control and, and return to some in-person educational events at some point. But this is likely the, the near and, and, and not so near future right now. Um, how do you see that impacting our younger surgeons as they go through residency fellowship in their early careers? Uh, I think uh, orthopedic education now, in terms of uh, didactic education, is a challenge, just as you point out. You know, uh, in, the, in the pre-COVID era, if... Uh, if you gave a conference to a, uh, a group of residents, you know, let's say a, a case conference, the ability to run a case conference and ask, ask the residents questions at different levels, drive the discussion, right, make it educational, but get everybody involved is a learned skill, right? I've, I've seen people do it very well. Some people do it not very well. That's now made even more difficult over Zoom, but it's doable. Right over the Zoom conference call, if you focus on it and structure it right, a Zoom conference rather, you, you can get everybody involved, and you, you need to do that. It's very, very essential. So that's a learned skill, and that's going to be a part of it going forward. Now, do I think it's going to be, you know, the we're going to be doing this forever? No, of course not. Right, I think there is a, an important role for in-person conferences that will probably return, but until then you need to focus on this, developing the skills necessary to run a conference. Now, we have a very large residency program. We have 72 residents. So tomorrow morning, we will have 72 residents uh, involved in our uh, Wednesday morning didactic conferences from 6.30 to 9.30, right? Now, in the, last, in the last month or so, because things have been better, in our auditorium, we'll probably have about 30 of those residents spread out all over the place, right? And another 30 or 40, you know, on, online, uh, uh, through the through Zoom, right? And uh, we've structured it in a way that the lecturers or the people that are running the conferences or are in the auditorium, 
right, running it, you know, sitting there. You know, the computer screen has everybody who is uh, dialed into Zoom in that tile mode, and you see, and they see everybody in the in the audience. So, but is it easy to start interacting with everybody? No, but you know, that's what we have to do to achieve some semblance of structure to the conferences that we have. Now, that's a, that's a very big conference. You know, we have conferences in each one of our divisions once or twice a week, which is a smaller group, which makes it easier, even even over over Zoom. But the ability to do that really requires some some focus. Now, what it also does is, because we're still operating, because we interact with residents all the time in the operating room and such, you have to even maximize the amount of time you, uh, that you spend with residents in person, whether it be going over the x-rays, preparing for cases, and in the operating room, because those that time now becomes more valuable because it's it's the in-person time as opposed to the the much wider range of in-person time that we had before. So it's a challenge, there's no doubt about it. Now, resident education is one thing or fellow education, but look at what's happened to orthopedic education in general. I mean, this past weekend, you know, I was, you know, and in, uh, involved in a symposia at the transatlantic shoulder course, right? And I did that from the beauty of my kitchen, right, in my in my house, right? I, I've got some... Uh, a meeting uh, in uh, in Turkey in December. Last year I went to Turkey. All right, this year you know I'm going to be in my den where I do this. Right, so I think that you know th that that's a great benefit. I think people can really you know uh, learn from this. It's and and things like that are going to be here you know probably in perpetuity. Right, we're not going to go back to you know traveling you know 14 hours to get to Turkey for a two-day meeting like we did before. There'll be some of that, but it's going to be much more much more selective than it was before. Dr. when you've had a, a prominent role as president of the Academy and the SES, um, I'm sure you've accomplished just so many great things with both organizations. Tell us what you think your most impactful legacy has been with both societies. So, so uh, let, me, uh, let me make a few general comments first. So I, I think that, that when you get to be uh, president of uh, the, these professional societies, uh, I think it's important to recognize that these, in general, these are successful societies with a track record of, of uh, accomplishments moving in the right direction in general. And what you want to do is you want to steer the ship, right? And you may want to take it, you know, 10 degrees right rudder or 10 degrees left rudder, whatever that, listen, I'm, I'm no sailor, so I hope that's the right analogy, right? But you're not going to turn around and send the ship, you know, in the opposite direction. So you want, what you want to do, you want to do things to make the organization better. So you don't want to change the nature of the organization. So I remember when I became, uh, uh, I was president of the ASES, right? Uh, I spent a fair amount of time on the, uh, the structure and function of, of how we did things at the executive committee, how we looked at our budgeting process, uh, the concept of having a, a, a capital budget, you know, money that we used every year for growth and development, not just putting money in the bank, spending money in order to develop programs. Right and such and and back then you know this was you know I think 1992 93 or, or in that range uh, 94 95 uh, and the organization was smaller right and and uh, it was more manageable now it's much bigger and more successful frankly I'm glad it's much bigger because I think this strength in numbers if you want to spread the word don't make it a hundred member uh, hip society right uh, make it and welcome people in 
So I, I think that's that's important. So in the, for the Shoulder Society, it was it was new enough when I became president that there still it still needed changes in its organizational structure, and and I think I I had an impact uh, in that area uh, specifically. Now it's interesting when you when you go ahead to the uh, being president of the AOS. One thing to recognize is that that was the culmination of, you know, I would say the first thing I did with the AOS was in 1986 when I was on a subcommittee to write questions for the uh, self-assessment exam. You know, and I, I became, you know, a second vice president in 2007. So you spend 20 years in the organization doing different things and you learn a lot about the organization and uh, it makes you want to get more involved. You know, you don't get involved because you want to become president. You get involved because you enjoy it. You like what you do, and you see yourself having an impact in within your profession. But when the year I became president was the year of the Affordable Care Act, and uh, to me that was a great opportunity because I've always been interested in healthcare. I have my own personal feelings about healthcare and uh, the whether whether uh, healthcare is a right or a privilege. That was a that was a uh, a discussion we used to have in ninth grade social studies class uh, when I was growing up, and I I felt back then that healthcare was a right, not a privilege. And then I get I get uh, landed into the middle of this Affordable Care Act and healthcare reform discussion, representing uh, our organization, and our views on this were somewhat different than my own personal views. But this is not about my personal views. This is about representing the organization, and to me that was a a, a tremendously uh, interesting and in some ways satisfying aspect of everything I did that year because it was a substantive issue. We could structure our response to it. We worked with the Washington office in getting it out there. We tried to develop coalitions with other organizations, unfortunately to no avail because the other organizations you know, were not as, uh, as uh, focused as, as we were, but it really, uh, it really had a, uh, an impact on me and and I think it helped the organization understand where we where we should stand on on the issue of the Affordable Care Act. So uh, I think that's important. And once again, you know, I was you know, for the year I was president, you were faced with an important issue, and you address it. We didn't we didn't turn the organization around. We didn't you know uh, add five new uh, missions to the mission statement or anything like that, right? We made the organization better, right? And we tried to respond to the needs of the membership. And I think that's most important. And I just add one other thing, you know, I, I'm particularly uh, 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 pleased about the fact that a couple of years later, when I finished, they asked me to, uh, to run the capital campaign for the new building, the AOS building that was built uh, uh, in the, uh, uh, not in the town next to Rosemont, uh, and uh, I'm sure you've all been at the new building there, right? So I took that on at Josh Jacobs' request, and we were successful. We raised about about ten million dollars uh, for that, which which uh, in New York City will get you a very very large three bedroom apartment, but in the, in that area outside O'Hare Airport, got us uh, a good portion of that building. So I'm I'm particularly happy about that. Well, it's such a great building that combined with the OLC um, and, and just having everything kind of under one roof right there. I know when I was back in Chicago, it was so convenient to be able to go there. Um, and even now traveling, you know, right to O'Hare, what a, what a great building and obviously what a great legacy with both societies and, and setting the stage for future leaders. Um, 
you know, over your career, you, you've seen so many innovations in shoulder surgery, even apart and contributed to so many of these innovations um, and in orthopedic surgery in general. You know, perhaps no better example of this is than the reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Looking forward, what do you predict as the biggest change or innovation uh, over within orthopedic surgery in the next 10 years? And at the same time, what do you see as the biggest challenge? Um, and, and hopefully, hopefully it's not COVID because hopefully we're, we're you know, <laughs> that in the next 10 years. Um, but yeah, what do you see as, as coming up on the horizon here? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's interesting, Rachel, that you asked that question because a couple of years ago, I wrote a, uh, what I consider an op-ed for the Journal of Shoulder Elbow Surgery about innovations and in, innovation in shoulder surgery, the, uh, the cost to our patients, right? Because, and what it was, it was a description of all the different things that we've done a number of them very successful, Another, uh, some of them abject failures. I mean, think about some of the things we've done under the, under the heading of advancement and innovation. Uh, you know, uh, a thermal capsulography, you know, pain pumps, right? I mean, we have ours in shoulder, right? Uh, uh, and uh, hips and knee have it. They all have that stuff. So uh, having a, uh, taking a close look at innovation is important, but there's no doubt about it that, that we've, the, the, the needle has moved significantly upward in the way that we take care of patients, but we still have some hits and misses. I mean, think about the the, uh, the early phases of reverse shoulder arthroplasty. Uh, the complication rate that uh, was present for the from I'd say 19 uh, from let's say 2000 to 2008 or so when it was first came to the United States and was released and had more general use, you know, instability, you know, over 10%, you know, infection close to 10%. I mean, when you think about that, those are, those are relatively unsuccessful, but we've made it better. We've absolutely made it better and we've learned. But, you know, when you learn in a laboratory on mice, that's one thing, right? When you learn in, in a clinical laboratory on patients, you always want to have a healthy respect for the impact of, of what you do and when it doesn't when it doesn't work out even with the best intentions now that being said i think that going forward right the 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 ability to harness artificial intelligence and predictive analytics is going to have a major impact on uh what we do particularly in arthroplasty i think the ability to take large data sets analyze them and be able to tell ahead of time that in this patient with these set of characteristics with a a large rotator cuff tear, right, that the chances of uh, an un, uh, unsuccessful repair being 96% don't do the operation, right? Think about other options. I think, I think uh, the, the, the time of, you know, reporting 50, 50 patients that have a specific operation is going to go by the wayside, and we're going to start looking at, you know, much larger data sets, and that's going to help us predict what the outcomes of procedures will be before we even do them. I think that's critically, critically important. Now, the challenge I think going forward is going to be on the side of cost, because everything we do in uh, in uh, shoulder surgery or in medicine in general always seems to cost more, right? It always adds cost to it. Listen, I use you know preoperative planning and intraoperative navigation for uh, my shoulder replacements, right? That costs more than if I didn't do it. Do I think it's better? Do I think it makes me a better surgeon? Do I, do I think it's going to lead to better outcomes? Yes. Have I been able to prove it? No. But we need to. 
I think that our ability to keep adding on and doing things differently, whether it be a new anchor, right, a new patch for rotator cuff repairs or uh, any variations on a theme that invariably increase the cost are now going to have to uh, undergo the close scrutiny uh, of the increased cost and versus the benefit. And you can't just do it on the, we won't be able to do it on the anticipation that things will be better, that things will be improved. We're actually going to have to study this, right? Or else healthcare costs will continue to, I think, will continue to spiral out of control. Dr. Zuckerman, I, I couldn't agree with you more that, um, you know, we, we, have to, we have to improve and to improve, we, we must push. And somewhere, sometimes along the way, we make mistakes. Um, we just have to recognize them. One of the things that I think is super interesting that you mentioned along the way there is how the future is, is big data. And one of the things that I've really admired about what you and your group have done is that you've been able to build a multi-institution database that captures a lot of the relevant data with you and you and the group that you work with with Exact Tech. Tell us how we can how we how can we take that experience with a limited group of surgeons that all work closely together and replicate it on a more larger national scale so that we can build something that has you know the sample size power of market scan or Nesquip or NIS or one of those databases, but also contains the granularity of the variables we really care about. So I think to do that, the organizations, the professional organizations need to be involved. The reason why the exact tech database works is because it's supported in this case by an organization industry and it's, uh, it's supported by individuals that are committed to collecting the data, right? That's essential. Now, if you look at what the Shoulder Society, AOS, is doing with the rotator cuff registry, that's a step in the right direction. Even for the last 10 years, the American Joint Replacement Registry, building big data, that's also an important step in the right direction. But as you point out, one of the issues is, you know, that you don't have the granularity of the data to be able to make decisions about it. However, it will allow you to identify important macro trends that will, will uh, uh, indicate problems far earlier than, than you would otherwise. Look at the issues related to, you know, metal on metal hip replacements, right? And how that came, how that was identified probably would have developed sooner if we had a more a national database associated with that. But eventually it came out, but it was probably slower uh, than, it, than it would have. So I think the, the professional organizations that we're members of need to lead the way, need to lead the way on this. And then it gets to be an issue of cost because the, the, the organizations have to support this, but the membership has to, has to recognize and support the fact that their membership dues, the dollars that they provide, uh, can be used for, for initiatives like this for the greater good of what we do. I think one of the, one of the things you bring up about cost is so critical to this question, because I think this, this particular question to me is one of the great questions that's facing American orthopedics that we're all, I think a lot of people are really working on, but it's been hard to consolidate our efforts in the same way that the Australians or, you know, the, the Swedish or like many of the other countries have gotten so far ahead of us in this regard. Have you thought at all about, should the cost come completely from orthopedic surgery or is there a role for governmental funding for this kind of thing as there's been in other countries? Yeah, uh, I think the smaller countries have been uh, successful in the, uh, in supporting registries, in part because they're smaller, but also in part because they have a different healthcare system in place. All right, whether it be a national health insurance, uh, the the 
the professional fee structure is different. I mean, in the in the United States, uh, we're we're forever ba uh, battling reductions in uh, Medicare reimbursement for what for what physicians do, right? And if the government said, well, we're going to spend more time, we're going to spend uh, you know X amount of dollars on the on a registry, and it's going to therefore we're going to have to decrease physician reimbursement for things. That's not going to go over very well, right? It's not. Uh, and which is amazing to me because the cost of these things we're talking about in the big picture of healthcare reform, and I'm sorry, the big cost of healthcare financing, particularly by federal programs, is trivial, right? But they just can't seem to get it together to, to have a, co a coherent policy about how they do this. You know, one of the things uh, I wrote an article once about, you know, healthcare reform and such, and I, and I suggested that. Uh, one of the things that the, that the CMS could do is pay the tuition of every medical student in this country for three or four years that they're in medical school in exchange for, you know, an equivalent number of service years, like, you know, the public health service as such. That way you wouldn't have physician shortages anywhere. People could put the time and effort in. And I think back when I did this, I calculated it would amount to less than 1% of the current, you know, of the current uh, CMS budget that year. Right, one percent you can pay the tuition for every everybody, every medical student in the country, right across the board. I mean, think about this. To me, that would be a potential no-brainer, uh, but you know, it's it, it'll never happen for all the different special interests involved. That's why. When we think about big data and the ability to use these numbers to not only maybe predict what procedure might be best, but also what the expected outcomes are for a given patient or a given, given demographic group. Um, what do you think about the use of data and the use of, you know, registries to tie into physician reimbursement? Um, should we be able to use such databases or quality control metrics? And should those metrics be tied into physician reimbursement, surgeon reimbursement? And as an add-on to that question, how do you monitor quality in your department? How are you guys doing this locally? So uh, I think that uh, we are moving to the point where physician reimbursement will be tied to different outcomes, but not the usual ones. I think we're already close when it comes to uh, patient satisfaction, HCAP scores, right? How you, and the public, and the public, uh, uh, publication of individual patients, uh, uh, individual physician scores. Uh, I think it's, it's only a matter of time before insurance companies will start to tie that in. Patients aren't happy in seeing a certain doctor that's going to have an impact, or maybe they'll, these physicians won't be uh, part of the network for an insurance company. So I think it, it's, it's going there. I think the publication of uh, uh, outcome uh, measures like infection rates, uh, discharge to home, all those things are on the cusp of being put out there, right? And I think the time will be in the next five years, all right, when somebody's going to say, you know, somebody comes into my office and I say, well, you know, I do about 150 shoulder arthroplasties a year. And they're going to go to a website and say, wait a second, he told me 150. It says here he did 120, all right? And he told me the infection rate was 0.5%. It says here that it's 1%, right? I think that's all going to be out there, right? And 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 uh, And the next step... To that is, if it's not a tie into reimbursement, patients are gonna are gonna vote with their feet, right? Once the data gets out there, they're gonna they're gonna decide who they want to see and who they don't want to see. That's why it's critically important for the data to be accurate. 
One question I have for you about that is, I mean, you're NYU's in a particularly competitive environment for practicing. You know, through your department, I'm sure you've assisted so many faculty members in building their practices in this competitive environment. Again, we have a lot of listeners who are trying to build their own practice. What advice would you have for people who are out there trying, looking at their schedule, wishing it was more full in a competitive environment? How, how do you build a practice quickly? What are the, what are the critical elements? Well, I think that uh, the most important thing is uh, you can't you can't start off too too super specialized, right? And somebody wants to wants to help with a patient, right? Uh, you help them, right? The doctor calls you about a patient uh, that's with an infected shoulder arthroplasty or, or some you know a diabetic with a, a wound dehiscence after a rotator cuff uh, a surgery or something, right? You take those patients, right? You do everything you can. To take the patients so that the whoever is out there, the patient or the the physician who is who wasn't able to take care of them, you know, has a positive view of how you try to help them. That's critically important. You know, I've never been a, a big one for going out and uh, and spending a lot of time with uh, intern internists or referring physicians uh, to help build practices. So, some people do. They spend a lot of they spend time visiting physical therapists and such. Maybe that's bigger in the sports medicine. Uh, uh, area, but what I have done is right. I've made sure that I've contacted patients afterwards. I'm, I'm sorry, contacted referring doctors afterwards. Made sure they heard about the patient. Made sure they they knew what was going on. And sometimes a physical therapist will send you uh, a, a patient, making sure they know what the uh, outcome is. And I think you have to do that in every way possible. You know, for the probably at least the first five years in practice, because over time. If you're in one place and your practice grows, then your practice becomes generated more so by patients. The patients you take care of, now you're taking care of their cousin, their coworker or such, right? But it takes five years or more to really you know, develop that as, a, as an important part of your practice. And, and you're right, New York is a competitive environment. There's a lot of orthopedic surgeons in New York. There's a lot of institutions, but New York is a very populated area. But even in that context, now when we hire uh, new faculty members, invariably, they're not just working in Manhattan, they're working in other places. They're working in Long Island and Brooklyn, Queens, right? We're looking for other opportunities for them, right? To bring patients into their office from different areas because you can get, you can get too uh, saturated in one, in one specific area. But I think what, if, you're, if you uh, make yourselves available now, it's interesting. You know, you can think all I do is write these uh, op-eds, but I, I, I did something for uh, an opinion piece for JBJS recently on the three A's revisited. Remember, the, you know, you might have heard the story about the three A's, uh, availability, affability, and ability, right? That was the key to a successful practice. Availability used to mean that you're available to the referring doctor, right? Well, it may still mean that to a certain extent, but I also think a big piece of it is being available to your patients. Don't have three layers in between you and your patient so that when they have a problem, first they talk to your secretary, then they call to your PA or nurse practitioner, right, and such, right? You want to make sure you're available to patients so they, so they can have their, their issues addressed. I think that's an important aspect of, of the building a successful practice. You know, along these lines with building a practice, for better or for worse, every new physician these days has an online presence. And that's likely been established well before they began practice through the social media during college, now probably high school, uh, college, med school, et cetera. 
you know, what are your thoughts on physicians and social media? You know, we use it often for patient reviews, certainly for marketing and practice building, but a lot of physicians are um, are voicing their personal opinions on social media. In fact, um, we've seen uh, highlighted in AAOS now, you know, the, the top social media docs in orthopedics. Um, should this be part of every surgeon's new practice? Should we limit this? Can you advise your physicians on this? Um, what are your thoughts? So, so you know, I started in medicine in an era where it was unethical to advertise for anybody in medicine, physicians, hospitals, nobody would advertise because the, the AMA told us that it was unethical to do that. Now, times have changed. Now, not only do physicians advertise, institutions are a, are a large, a major source of advertising revenue for, uh, for and marketing for, in different venues. So that's the direction it's gone in. To me, there's a, it has to be uh, balanced with professionalism, right? You want to present yourself in a, in, in, as a professional. And, whether, and you can do that on social media, on various things. I'm no expert on social media, whether it be Facebook or, or Twitter or such, or just having a website that's constructed in such a way that it's, a traffic is driven to your, to your website, but do it in a professional way represent yourself in a way that's that's uh, honest straightforward right and is not given to hyperbole or certainly to uh to uh exaggeration i think that's that's very important because uh, i'm i'm a firm believer in that you know if you're a physician an orthopedic surgeon you're a professional and the our professionalism is the badge of honor that we wear and we don't want to do anything to compromise that so Use every aspect, use every every opportunity available to you, you know, every method available to you to maintain a presence so that people know who you are, right? But do it in a respond in a responsible way. I'm I'm absolutely fine with that. Well, that's I, I, however, 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 what's that? However, don't ask me to do it because I really don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> We've covered a, a huge amount of ground and um, really appreciate all of your insights into just a huge variety of different areas of shoulder and elbow surgery. One of the questions that we ask a lot of our um, guests that I think is maybe a useful insight into your thought process is, you know, if you, if you had to have dinner with any one person in all of history, living, living or dead, who would it be and um, where in New York City would you have dinner and what would you have? <laughs> Who would I have dinner with? Uh, let me see. I think I would have dinner with, uh, I would have dinner with, let's see. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out on a limb here, all right? And uh, I'm a, you know, I spent a lot of my time growing up in the 60s, right? And uh, I think I would have dinner, even though I didn't appreciate it back then, I would have dinner with uh, uh, Martin Luther King or Lyndon Johnson. Now, you may say, uh, who were, well, how would I, they, they, they seem somewhat opposite. You got this. You know, this guy from Texas who was president, right? Uh, and you got the probably the single most important leader of the civil rights movement, right? Well, uh, 
uh, I think that what uh, King accomplished, even with his in his shortened life, and uh, and and he was like most of us, flawed in different ways, uh, like all of us, right? Was incredible. I mean, and he was it's still unfinished business, but to get some insight into how he was able to what drove him and what he could uh, and, and 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 what drove him and, and what what made him be who he is, because you listen to some of his speeches and some of the things he says and does, the whole non nonviolent uh, uh, nonviolence movement that he led was uh, astounding, it really was. And then you got this guy from Texas, right, who passed, you know, I think the three most important pieces of legislation right in our lifetime and which was you know it created medicare the voting rights act and uh uh the civil rights act right those those are profoundly important pieces of legislation uh when you think about it uh and and i think he was a master politician right from everything i can see i haven't read all three books of his life story Right, but the ones that I've read, uh, I was very impressed with him. And uh, anybody could have gotten that done, right, uh, deserves a, a lot of credit. I'd like to understand more of how, of how he did it. Now, where would I take them to dinner, all right? Well, my favorite restaurant in New York City of all time was the Gotham Bar and Grill. I say that was the Gotham Bar and Grill because after eating there for the better part of 20 years, right, probably, you know, I don't know, you know, 15, 20 times a year, not only for, for professional things, but the important family events, they changed the chef, right? And the new chef came in and ruined it, right? I couldn't even uh, understand what was on the menu. <laughs> I just wanted, you know, the uh, sirloin steak, right? And it wasn't there anymore. Well, that, that didn't last very long. And uh, when COVID started, Gotham closed, but now it's opening again. I'm told in the spring, right back to where it was before. So I would take them back to Gotham Bar and Grill, sit in the back, right on the elevated portion, right in a corner table, uh, and make sure that we got you know, the best that Gotham had to offer. That's what I would do. Well, Dr. Zuckerman, I can't tell you much. I appreciate you coming on to our podcast. I, for me, it's really full circle to be able to ask you the kind of question I was asked when I interviewed at NYU back on our podcast, like. This, this feels to me like I've completed some sort of little loop in my life to ask that question and maybe stump you for just a moment, but I love your answer. So, so, so uh, do you remember your interview with me when you interviewed for residency? I do. I do. It was very you memorable. Do? Yeah. Right. No, I, I remember it. Everyone remembered it. Everyone my year commented that, that was like one of the most memorable interviews that anyone had. Yeah. yeah you but, commented on my socks. Yeah, exactly. Because you know something, right? You know, listen, one of the great three days of my year, all right, is the three days we spend interviewing medical students. I, I, to this day, you know, 30 plus years later, I enjoy it like no end. And to me, this is a, this is a getting to know somebody opportunity, right? So me talking about your socks, uh, and I, I'm known for asking grueling questions. I think the most grueling question I asked is, if you could have any candy bar, imaginable which one would you choose and why it's a little bit like you just asked me about who i would have dinner with but you're much more sophisticated than mine i would ask it but what candy bar and there's no right or wrong answer but there are some answers that were better than others did i ask you that question you didn't ask me that question i like that one we, we may have to transition from the dinner question to the candy bar question rachel we'll have to figure yeah. out what what the best question that's a that's a good thought i like that one 
Because in my in my room in my room the best answer is Snickers. Right? Okay. <laughs> I remember when you asked me that question, and it I was not. Um, I can honestly say I was not ready for a question like that. I was expecting you know much more uh, uh, challenging questions, and that turned out to be um, a, a question that I, I I had an answer because I love candy. I'm I would consider myself a candy aficionado, um, and so I was ready to answer on the spot. But it was definitely an interesting question. And I, I agree. It is a get to know you kind of question. And there probably are. I don't want to go out on a limb here, but there probably are some wrong answers. Yeah. Like, you know, I remember one, one time I said, well, I better get a Cadbury's uh, chocolate. Right. Now, to me, Cadbury's, if you're picking Cadbury's. You're not getting up in the middle of the night to see somebody with a tight cast. Right? Okay, <laughs> Because, you know, I think that's more of a more, more of an issue. Right. OK. So. Uh, you know, sometimes you can read between the lines here. Now we ask them, we ask them tougher questions, of course, but we also, you know, to me, interviewing for residency program is is trying to figure out whether, because uh, everybody's smart these days, there's no doubt about it. Everybody has great credentials, but really to find out whether you know, over the next five years, right, it's going to be an enjoyable experience to work together. So that's that's part of the rationale for that. Plus. You know, it, it's, it makes it more fun. Now, you, you already alluded to the chief resident room where they were, you know, having you pay, play, uh, you know, uh, different games while they talk to you to distract you. But that's different. Uh, faculty can't do that. <laughs> I, I do remember my year in the video games. We played uh, um, quarters with water, uh, certainly water and nothing else. Um, but it was great because I, you know, I had a skill set in that for my college years. So that was really nice to be able to show that. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's painful this year because we have to do all these interviews over Zoom, right? But we'll do it. It won't be the same, though. Won't be the same. Everything's changing. Well, you know, today that's really all the time we have for this podcast. We want to thank Dr. Zuckerman so much for sharing your time, your advice, your insights, um, and your stories with us, and 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 just your your story of how you have become what you have become, and your influence uh, on so many of us individually, and so many of your students and residents and fellows and faculty at NYU, and perhaps most importantly, orthopedic surgeons around the globe. So really a privilege for both Pete and myself. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. For Peter Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frey, and we'll see you next time. Okay. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Rachel.